You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, the host of World Class and director of FSI. My guest today is FSI Senior Fellow Nathaniel Persley, who is the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford's Law School and the faculty co-director of FSI's brand new Cyber Policy Center. He also leads the program on democracy and the internet, one of the Cyber Policy Center's core programs. His scholarship and legal practice focus on American election law, or what is sometimes called the law of democracy, which addresses issues such as voting rights, political parties, and campaign finance. He is also, along with myself, a co-author of the recent white paper, Securing American Elections, Prescriptions for Enhancing the Integrity and Independence of the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election and Beyond, which we'll talk more about today on this podcast. Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So where to begin? Let's start with some history. You've been talking about the relationship between technology and democracy for a long time. What surprised you about 2016? Well, I think the general view about the effect of the internet and technology on campaigns was sort of utopian before the 2016 election. People talked about the sort of Jedi masters of the Obama campaign who figured out targeting and use of the internet to really mobilize small donors and mobilize voters. Then with the 2016 election, the appraisal of the internet became decidedly dark. Not only because a lot of people were surprised by the result, but also because of the idea that a foreign government could actually use the internet to have an effect on a U.S. election and on U.S. public opinion was not an issue that was really on the table in previous elections. And so now what was previously seen as legitimate campaign activity now was seen as illegitimate influence operations by a foreign power. Well, let's talk about 2016 a little bit uh, in depth before we get to prescriptions. There's the problem on the internet, and then there's the problem of media more generally, right? Talk a little bit about both of those buckets and how traditionally we've had laws to constrain or regulate that, but how they may be different when we talk about the internet. For the most part, our rules of political communication, and particularly campaign finance, are predicated on television being the primary mode of communication. Right. All of the regulations we have on advertising really focus on really the 30-second ad and the, the way it, it sort of is pushed to you on television right. as the primary object of regulation. But on the Internet... You know, there's all kinds of speech that goes on that affects uh, campaigns, some of it paid, some of it unpaid. And we don't have regulations that are really adapted to it. In fact, with very few exceptions, most internet campaign activity is really below the radar of the regulatory bodies that deal with these issues. And so that's the regulatory vacuum into which the problems of the 2016 election fell. And those are problems that are all kinds, right? Domestic and foreign as well, right? Oh, that's right. We'll get to the Russians in a minute, but it's... It's a wild, wild world out there. Let's just take something simple as how much money was being spent online by the different campaigns in 2016 as well as super PACs and outside groups. We really don't know that answer. You're going to find estimates in different places. How much money was spent on Facebook versus Google and YouTube or through other means. We really don't have good ideas about that. We have better ideas about 
television advertising because that's the kind of thing that's reported both to the FEC and the FCC, the Federal Election Commission and the Federal Communication Commission. We have lots of research on that. But internet advertising is not just like one thing, like a 30-second ad. It's banner ads. It's boosted posts. It's all kinds of mobilization tools. Organic stuff. Let alone the the, the prospect that we now deal with where you could essentially hire a troll army or a bot army to sort of advocate on your behalf. Right. And then added to that are foreign actors on the internet who, of course, because it's porous, they can be there as well. And as we know now from the Mueller report, they had a pretty sophisticated operation and some political preferences. One of the differences between the legacy media and the new media on the internet is that the government and the communication infrastructure was relatively well contained within the borders of the United States. Right. Sure, there are television channels that are sponsored by foreign governments and the like, Russia but you today, know what Russia instance. Today or even the right. BBC. BBC. We know about those examples. What happens on the internet is because of the worldwide nature of the web and the privileging of anonymity that uh, right. occurs on the web, right. then it's very difficult to determine the source of any communication, let alone its geographic origin. And now that you've seen what the Russians did, the Internet Research Agency, for instance, although I don't think that was the only thing they did. That was just what Mueller focused on. Do you think that we're going to see more activity like that from other foreign agents and actors? I think so. I mean, I think we're seeing it around the world already. Already. Uh, And the 2016 election was not just an event. It was a playbook that was written by the Russians. And that playbook is usable for for future elections in the United States as well as around the world. And so whether it's between India and Pakistan or whether it's China and Taiwan or other countries, let alone Russia and the Ukraine or Russia in our elections going forward, the playbook has been written and now it's just up to both states as well as stateless entities to follow it. Right. And the other thing about playbooks is that they change all the time, right? And Vladimir Putin, somebody I actually know personally, I wouldn't say we're Facebook friends, but uh, (laughs) I know him. Obviously, they can move and adapt. Have you thought about new adaptions to the playbook as we move into 2020, things we haven't been thinking about that might be present this time around? So my view on on the 2016 election is that the Russians wanted to be caught, right? There's a reason why they paid for Facebook ads in rubles, right? There's, it was not, (laughs) it it was not like a, I mean, yes, there are clandestine aspects to it, but they want it to be open and notorious. That's not so clear going forward, either with them or other foreign actors. Now, as you think about the different ways that an adversary can adapt to sort of new rules that have been put in place by the platforms or by governments, it's becoming increasingly difficult to figure out the origin of communication uh, online. And because there, there were ways that Mueller and others detected what the IRA was doing, but that's not so easy going forward because all you have is a tweet or all you have is a Facebook post. It's not clear where it started because people are retweeting it you know, millions of times around the web, right. especially when so much of the activity is simply echoing what's happening in the domestic political debate anyway. Right, right. So the actual arguments or the polarization takes place, and then these are just amplifying it, which makes it even harder. Well, let's talk a little bit about what can be done. Start with what already has been done on the platforms, uh, you know, to the extent that you know, things that they've changed, and give us some report cards on that, and then talk about maybe what you think should be done more systematically, either by the platform companies or by the U.S. government. So you're right that the platforms have been much more nimble than governments in trying to address these problems. That shouldn't surprise us. They don't have to uh, 
deal with democracy, right? right? And so that they... <laughs> Senator uh, McConnell's not on the board of Facebook. That's right. And so the greatest progress, I think, has been in the way they deal with disclosure of advertising. Uh-huh. Both Facebook, well, Facebook, Google, and Twitter now have ad archives, so you can see all the ads that are run in a presidential election. Not only that, because Facebook's transparency regime was reversed engineered to get at the Russia problem, they now require disclosure, not just for candidate ads, but also ads on issues of national legislative importance. And so... That's Sounds could, like a hard thing to determine. It's right? a really difficult thing I to do. I but think I've heard you talk about that yeah, before. Yes. But eighty percent of the Russian ads did not mention right. a candidate, and right. so if you're going to get at that problem, you're going to have to deal with these sort of messages of division, whether right. you know they were on issues of gun rights or immigration or Black Lives Matter. That's what Facebook has decided to do. It's different than what Google has done, and part of the problem here is we have really inconsistent regimes between the different platforms, as well as it's sort of difficult to aggregate together all the information to really figure out how much money is being spent by whom on what. Right. But that's an area where they have done the most. On the ads. And then on the organic content, through machine learning as well as other kinds of tactics, including beefing up their cybersecurity infrastructure at the platforms, they've taken a range of measures to try to identify bad actors, kick them off the platform, or to demote their content so very few people see it. Right. I mean, Facebook just did that against some Iranian elements I just saw just a couple weeks ago, uh, underscoring the fact that, A, they're trying to find them, and B, that it's not just the Russians. That's right. And it's happening around the world. I mean, the watershed moment of the 2016 election was a wake-up call to the platforms about how they have to deal with the issue of foreign intervention in domestic elections generally. Right. And so the tools that they've developed to deal with the Russians are ones that they now have to roll out around the world. And it becomes extremely difficult because while it, while it seems obvious that the platform should be preventing foreign intervention in any given election, sometimes you have these problems of what do you, when you have expat citizens who are trying to speak to their domestic audiences or whether you have human rights groups from outside a country they're trying to sort of persuade people in that country. So these are very difficult questions that they've had to deal with. Well, and and let's talk about disinformation more generally, right? When we think of foreign disinformation, we all get focused and say that shouldn't happen. When it's organically created by Americans, it seems like it's a pretty tough issue. I'm thinking of the Pelosi video most recently, and it was striking that, if I'm not mistaken, Facebook decided to leave it up, but YouTube decided to take it down. That's right. To underscore a point you raised earlier that we don't have standardization across the board, right? That's especially true when it comes to disinformation. Each one of the platforms has different rules on that. Facebook's position is that they are not the arbiter of truth. You will hear them say that time and again. And they use this really as a test case for what is, I think, the next generation of election manipulation, so-called deep fakes, when you can have artificial video that basically puts words into a person's mouth that they never said. And so with the Pelosi video, their tactic was to disclose that it was altered and then to demote it so it limited its reach so that fewer Facebook users would end up seeing it, but they didn't kick it off the platform unlike YouTube, which is what what, that was their decision. took it down. And for our listeners, I should have been clear that the Pelosi video was a speech that she gave, but it was slightly altered, slowed down, and made it sound like she was uh, drunk, right? That's right. Mistaken. And so it's really kind of a shallow fake. It's, right. not, that, it's, it's not a deep it's, fake. It's, it's not that fake. deep. Right. So, But it is the standards that are going to be developed in test cases like this, under conditions which are not as politically incendiary as an election, are going to right. be the ones that are going to be rolled out and applied in elections in the U.S. and around the world. Right. 
What if the Russians or Chinese had put out that video? Would the reaction have been different? I don't think the reaction from Facebook it would have been different. It depends on whether they did it openly, right? So one of the things that made the Pelosi video hard for Facebook is that while it was altered, the identity of the publication, the person that put it out there, wasn't. And so if you, Facebook's rules are about oh, um, coordinated, right. inauthentic activity. Right. Okay. Coor and so Say that all again. Coordinated, inauthentic, inauthentic activity. activity. So right. if you disguise who you are, and then you try to have these coordinated groups amplify your message and do it in a surreptitious way, then that's a problem. Now, what we're learning is that you don't need to do all this stuff in secret, right? And it doesn't need just right. to be state actors. You can have uh, domestic actors that do it. Right. And what's your sense of these companies? Do they want regulation? Do they want norms? Or are they afraid of Washington screwing everything up? Well, the answer is both. Okay. I mean, for so much of the last 20 years, the internet companies were saying, uh, stay away. the hell away, right? Now they are inviting certain types of regulation because one, they realize that if they talked to political scientists, we would have told them this long ago, that they, there's some advantage to being in the room as the regulations are written to make them good regulations instead right. of bad regulations. Right. Secondly, there are some issues that they want to, they don't want responsibility for, right? right? The one you mentioned before about like how to define what a political ad is. Right. Facebook doesn't want to be in the position of deciding what is political. It's a hard um, It ends up groping in advertisements for the New York Times right. or for Amazon Books and the like. And privacy issues is another area where they just want to be told whether what's the rule around the world. Is it GDPR that the Europeans have proposed? Is it something else? Explain GDPR for our listeners. So, so the Europeans probably have developed the most extensive privacy protection regime, which is being replicated around the world. But it is quite different than the rules that we have in place in the United States. And it you know, prevents the kind of transfer and outside distribution of individual level data, the kind that Facebook and Google gather for advertising purposes. And so there's a whole sort of suite of regulations under GDPR that the platforms have actually endorsed. They say they're right. in favor of it. Right. But what they want is consistency around the world so that they know what the privacy regime should be and how it should apply in different contexts. They also argue that these privacy rules do prevent them from dealing with things like disinformation and national security threats and trying to analyze whether it's terrorist content or to understand the identities of people who are engaging in, with certain content on the platform, and for that matter, to work with governments that are trying to confront those threats. Right. That makes sense. Let's go back to the elections for a moment and the foreigners and, and the, the report that we worked on together. You wrote on both what to do on the platforms, but also traditional media about some of the recommendations to enhance the integrity and independence of the election. So tell our listeners what should be done. That second point that you mentioned, it's not just that there is surreptitious content that is being put out there by the Russians. That wasn't just the case in, in 2016. But then there are examples of open and notorious sort of broadcasts right. that the Russians engaged in through their official media outlets, RT, Russia Today, okay. and Sputnik. Sputnik. And these pose really challenging questions for regulation and sort of constitutional law. Right. How do you prevent a foreign broadcaster, either on the internet or on the airwaves, from trying to manipulate a U.S. election. Do you ban all, I mean, it's sort of inconceivable that we would ban all right. foreign broadcasting during an election. So you'd take off BBC America, right. Al Jazeera, the Canadian broadcasting system, right? That doesn't- Even the Canadians yeah, have right? to take off. That's, so, that's so outrageous. It doesn't seem like we would do against that. But there is a kind of benefit when it comes to RT and Sputnik, which is that they were determined to be foreign agents, right? right. Under right. the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And as a result, 
you have this kind of special situation where you could develop a regime that says, look, if you are uh, determined to be a foreign agent right. and fulfill these sort of rigorous criteria that are applied there, then there at m a minimum has to be a disclosure on right. your channel and on the internet that you have been designated as such by the government. Right. So that's on the broadcast part, and then on the internet side. Uh, same thing. Same I mean, thing. I, I think okay. with that, you, you the right. disclosure as well. Now, the, the, what YouTube has done has they have decided that all foreign broadcasters right. will be designated as a, not agents, but but as funded by in whole or in part by their respective governments. That that applies to the BBC as well as to Russia Today. Right. And so, do they uh, use the same label for Russia Today and BBC? I've never checked. Is it one it, it slightly is, nicer? Or? No, it is the same label. Sometimes. I don't think they use the word agent, but they do say funded in whole or in part by the ex-government. Okay. Yeah. And, and you think that's good? That's I good think idea. that is good. Right. I mean, it's not clear it makes a huge difference because people don't necessarily read the subtitles on these things. Right. But one of the, the problems on social media is that all information is packaged the same way. So an RT article comes at you at the same time as your son's you know, graduation video as right. a op-ed in the New York Times as an advertisement or a Breitbart article, and they're all sort of ripped of the context. Right. And so if you're scrolling through something and it is designated as foreign material, you can at least evaluate that in your decision to read it. If you see the label and you right. think about it. And they're pretty good at making it look like uh, normal content RT is. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and we need to be clear that most of the content on RT is true. Right. Right. Good point. A lot of it is what our soon to be colleague Renee Duresta calls disaster porn. I mean, if you right. look at, if you look at what, <laughs> there are a lot of these the RT right. articles about, you know, man eaten by alligator in the Everglades or right. something like this. But they do this in order to build an audience. Right. And then sprinkle in political content when it most suits them. Right. So as we look to 2020, do you think we're going to see, well, let me put it just as broadly as possible, how worried are you about the mess that it might be in terms of what we, given that the playbook's known by other actors, given that technology has expanded, is it going to be a real mess? Or do you think because of the education we had from 2016, we might have a better chance at a more normalized election in 2020? One of the problems with the success of the influence operation in 2016 is that we will now suspect it's happening even if it's not happening, right? And so wow, that's a great that point. everyone is going to be looking for nefarious influences and shouting them from the rooftops, and that actually serves the purposes just as much exactly. because so much of the attempts in 2016 were about fostering division and doubt. Right. And I think there's a lot of appetite for doubt right now in the American public. Right. You're going to see it when you have 25 Democratic candidates who are running. For sure, there's going to be divisive rhetoric that's coming from dubious sources, right. right, to try to divide the American public. And the use of words like fake news and disinformation, those are not words we used to use just three or four years ago. No. That's right. Politicians and, use them all the time. And one of the things that we are learning in part through research that we're sponsoring through the Cyber Center is that while Americans are becoming more suspicious of fake news, they are becoming more suspicious of true news as well. Right. And so that the, the doubt that has been created through the influence operation and the environment of 2016 is now having sort of a payoff, uh, a sort of negative payoff in people's attitudes toward legacy media and traditional journalism. Right. All the more reason why smart people like you need to be studying this, right? And people here and at Stanford you. <laughs> and our new center. I mean, I do think it is one of the, it's an international security issue, but it's also an issue for democracy. It cuts across disciplines. And I think that's why we do need a new policy center. And thanks for taking the leadership on it, Nate. Thanks for having me. And we'll be sure to have you back many times as the center gets developed. 
You've been listening to World Class from the Freedom and Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you like this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find the show. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.